Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I'm just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And Rory, there's a lot to get through. I think we should talk about America-China and the significance of this odd balloon that's been floating across Canada and the States. Impossible, I think, to avoid the horrible, horrible, horrible tragedy of the earthquake in Turkey and particularly actually probably Syria where I suspect it's even worse because of the lack of infrastructure there and all the the geopolitics that are playing out there. Sadly I think we have to talk about Elizabeth Truss and Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson and the difficulties that they're giving their successor Mr Sunak and I'm fascinated by what's happening in your old constituency so we can come into that as well but Let's just kick off with uh, with this balloon story, which is um, it's it's sort of there's a comic element to it, but it's also very very serious. So where, where do you want to start with that? So I, th- I think the first thing is that we need to see it in two dimensions. Firstly, what is this object that was floating around? And I think we've seen quite a lot of serious intelligence analysts come forward. So the basic story about this enormous balloon is that balloons travel more slowly and are closer to Earth than satellites, so you can get higher resolution images. The second question is, how useful is this balloon to China? And the answer seems to be quite useful, but not incredibly useful. They could get quite a lot of that information already from Google Earth and from satellites. So what were they doing floating it over? Was it, as they claimed, a weather balloon that went off course? Um, that seems to be being challenged because U.S. points out that it had a guidance system on it. It had, it had um, propellers on it that could steer it around. And they also claim to be tracking another balloon that's over Latin America, in which case is it perhaps intended as a bit of a provocation because it's Ooh. a pretty visible object. Anyway, what's, what was your take on it all? Well, I think two things. I think it probably is a, it's a bit like when the Russians – send their jets and they just sort of, they veer into NATO airspace and they do that quite a lot, including, you know, within the UK, we occasionally get these stories of Russian planes getting quite close. Um, and so I think there is an element of, of sort of testing the limits. Um, but I think what, to me, what's been the most interesting thing has been the, the kind of political fallout in both countries. In America now, with the Biden State of the Union speech coming out, which is being seen pretty much as a kind of launch of his presidential campaign. China is becoming 
a very, very toxic issue within the American political debate. Just ask yourself this. So this thing's flying, floating across, comes through Canada, floats into the United States, and the Republicans are straight out there saying, why isn't it being shot down? Now, just imagine if it had been shot down and then <laughs> landed on a sort of, you know, lots of American homes and schools. And Biden probably did do the right thing in saying, okay, well, let's just let this thing go, see where it's, track it, see where it goes, and then they shot it down. But when you think that, as you say, there are satellites being used by the Americans on the Chinese and by the Chinese on America. And we're all, all the big countries are doing yeah, this. Sure. So they're spying through satellites. There's, there's economic espionage going on, on a massive scale, particularly from China. You've got the hacking that goes on. You've got human spies that are sort of, you know, all over the place. So this is actually a case, I think, where the, the optics of this, the fact you, you can see it, have driven the politics and it's become so political yeah. that Secretary of State Blinken suddenly cancels his trip to Beijing. Yeah. And, and what, 100%. And um, on CNN, Fareed Zakaria was remembering an, another famous American spat, which is now largely forgotten about Dubai ports, buying a port in the United States, which became mm. this incredible standoff between Republicans and Democrats. And as Fareed points out, a few years later, Dubai has quietly bought another port in the United States and nobody's really noticed. So, yeah. so I think it, it was certainly was not a massive threat to US national security. I think the other reason they may have, Biden may have found himself slightly wrong footed isn't just about protecting the public, because I imagine there might have been areas of desert where you could have shut mm. it down. I think it's also that there would have been a lot of people in the intelligence community very keen to keep monitoring it mm. and working out what it was doing. And they would have argued that there wasn't much risk in letting it continue to float over the United States. I mean, I think the Republican view of shoot it down immediately assumed that somehow every minute it was in the air, it was giving China vital intelligence. Mm. And I think that's probably where the intelligence community would differ and say it's not giving very vital intelligence. So why don't we just watch it and see what it's up to? Mm. And then within China, of course, because Xi, President Xi has not been, he's having a bit of a bad run over COVID. And so I'm not sure this has done him much good either. Uh, because I, look, it depends really what the Chinese establishment think about relations with America. Uh, we're going to be talking quite soon for the leading podcast to Fiona Hill, very big in the American foreign policy world. And I was watching something she did recently where she was effectively saying China and the United States to a great extent already are at war. Um, now, so, and, and I think you use the word provocation, which of course is the word that Putin always uses for anything that anybody does to sort of, you know, this idea that it's a provocation. I think it's constant testing of the limits and also testing of the weakness of the American political system. I think that's something that they like to do as well. So they're sort of pushing and they're probing. So the, the question now is whether both sides want to use this to crank things up or to diffuse things. And I must tell you, one, one of the most extraordinary, this is, a, I guess, in the diffuse box, one of the most extraordinary moments of my life was during the Kosovo War, when I was seconded to NATO and had become a sort of advisor to General Clark, who was the Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. So I'm lying in bed about, f you know, two, three in the morning, and the phone goes, and this very clipped American accent says, uh, Mr. Campbell, sorry to, sorry to disturb your sleep. General Clark thought you should know we've just bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. 
<laughs> and he literally said it like that. And I was like, still half asleep. And I said, what? <laughs> Deliberately. And he says, no, sir, this was an accident. And if you remember that one, that was like. I, I do. I do. And I remember, I remember it very cl- clearly because um, at the time, people couldn't quite believe that they could have done it accidentally. And I was with my father when the news came through. And my father was the, the British R man in Hanoi during the Vietnam War in the North Vietnam. And he said, no, no, they've got records for this. They actually managed to bomb the French embassy in North (laughs) Vietnam during the Vietnam War, which was right next to my father's building. You know, they almost killed him too. And I think took out, I think killed, unfortunately, one of the French diplomats in this building. Mm. So Mm. my father was very confident that the Americans have immense capacity to drop bombs on the wrong diplomats at the wrong time. It could have been an utter catastrophe. And I can remember there were all these sort of immediate panic emergency conference calls, you know, bringing in all of the kind of major players. And, you know, we decided actually nobody was going to say anything until we actually knew what had happened. I mean, it was, I think, genuinely an accident. But what was really interesting about that is that the obviously the, the Chinese were very upset and very angry and there were people killed. But they, at the mood at the time was to try to defuse. And so once the, all the major leaders from Clinton down all went out and apologized and, you know, said all the right things about this, you know, emphasizing it being an accident, emphasizing the importance of, 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 of uh, having better relations with China. But at the moment, it seems to be that something is, that feels quite a small thing, as you say, within the espionage network, this balloon assuming it was a deliberate thing, it's not going to be doing much they don't know already. Um, and yet, so it's now all about whether they want to repair. And that's why I felt the cancellation of Blinken's visit. I understand why he did it, given the politics. But in terms of the Anglo-Chinese, of the American-Chinese relationship, mm. it can't be a good thing. Yeah, but I, I guess you're right about the politics. So the ABC Washington Post has just brought out a recent poll and it's not very good news for Biden, which is is leading into this. So four out of 10 people say they're worse off under Biden's presidency, which is the highest figures they've found on that economic indicator for 37 years. And six out of 10 Democrats now don't want Biden to run again, compared to five out of 10 Republicans not wanting Trump to run again. Amongst 18 to 39-year-old Democrats, 69% would like someone other than Biden running. Uh, And then the polarization, which I think we've talked about before, which is it's still the case that 81% of Democrats approve of what Biden's doing, even if they don't want him to run again, Mm. compared to only 6% of Republicans. Mm. I mean, it's sort of completely different universe, even worse than it was under Trump. I think under Trump, the Republican approval rating was in the high 70s and the Democrat approval rating was over 10%. So actually, it's become more polarized than when Trump was in. I think there's a a greater understanding and a greater appreciation in America about job creation. I think when people talk about jobs, they kind of historically have given credit to the government yeah. in, in Washington. The, the job creation figures in the United States at the moment are off the scale, positive. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I think, I, think, I think, look, it's obvious why a lot of people don't want him to stand is because he's, he's, you know, he's getting on. Uh, but I think his record is pretty good. And, and I, I do think on the, on the foreign policy side, it is very hard in this polarized world to stay what he is, which is serious, methodical, 
um, really focusing on the, on the issues as they need to be addressed. And, and so that, that's why I found it quite disappointing that the, the reaction was to say, okay, Blinken doesn't go to, to Beijing, because that relationship is going to have to be fixed at some point. I, just to push back a bit, I wonder whether, I mean, I think you've been very good at pointing out that he's a, Biden is a very experienced politician and can be very, very polished and knows how to conduct himself in certain contexts and is good at the glad-handing relationships. Whether he's really serious and focused, that, that I'm less sure about. I mean, I consistently, when I talk to US officials, they're very bewildered by their encounters with the president mm. and his ability mm. to get muddled and confuse what he's talking about and get mm. countries upside down. So I, I think he's a sort of, um, he may be to return to the kind of vocabulary of the rest of politics podcast, a kind of distinguished figure, but possibly not, <laughs> not not as focused as we'd like. I've just been watching the Norma Percy uh, BBC series, Putin versus the West. You know, Norma Percy is this incredible filmmaker. She's made, I've actually appeared in several of her. She did Milosevic. She did Iraq. She did Ireland. She's, she just does these amazing documentary series where she just gets the big players to talk. And, it is, it is interesting that there was footage of Biden when he was meeting Putin when Biden was vice president. And there's no doubt he has aged quite. I mean, I, he, he, he looks better than his age in many ways, but he has aged. But I think you may, maybe you're right that he, he really has always looked the part. He's always, I think, given a sense of being in command of a situation. Uh, but what was what's very interesting, you should definitely watch this this series. It's rather ruined for me by Boris Johnson popping up, <laughs> trying trying to portray himself as a serious person. And he started to talk, by the way. Johnson has started to talk in interviews like he's doing an after-dinner speech. The same sort of bizarre sense of humor is coming back in. The sort of, you know, uh, he's actually talking about this phone call with, with Zelensky. So, you know, so, so I've got Zelensky on the blower. I mean, oh, you I know, see. it's yeah, like, yeah, it just, it's sort just, of anecdotes. Yeah. He's telling anecdotes. Yeah. This is the interview where he claimed that Putin had said to him, I can take you out in the missile, you know, yeah. obviously invented like a lot of his yeah. after dinner stories are. The character of Biden comes across very, very strongly as a foreign policy figure. And that, of course, has been generally his yeah. background. Yeah. So maybe the thing that you're onto is the fact that now being the president, where the focus is much more, has to be much more domestic, maybe he's turned a little bit inward. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a tension in the middle of the administration. So Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, wrote a very interesting piece, um, Foreign Affairs, which maybe people who are really focused on this may want to read before he came into office, saying that the lesson from Trump had been that the US foreign policy machine hadn't paid enough attention to voters at home. This is something that we explored with, with David Lammy and the, the Rest is Politics leading podcast when we interviewed him. And you can see David Lammy's very influenced by the way the Democratic Party is talking. And part of the message of that, a sort of isolationist message, it was a message about time to think more about what's going at home. We can't be the global policeman anymore. That was very much what underlay this catastrophic Biden withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, ending the forever wars. And has also meant, as we, as we move on to talk a little bit about the tragedy in Syria and Turkey, one of the reasons why America's position in the Middle East feels, feels much more fragile. Your point about Dubai, by the way, the other thing that's emerged in recent days is that this balloon, there were three incidents, similar incidents during the Trump presidency, and there has been one already under Biden. And sometimes it's just about the news agenda. 
Right. And the fact the fact is that all of the news networks in the States, once this thing arrived, it just became the thing that everybody was watching on their TVs the whole time. Whereas yeah. this has happened before and it's not created a stir. So just, just finally, before we move on, the, the other thing from that poll, and you know, this is within a margin of error, but it's currently showing Trump at 48 points against Biden, 44 points. So it's far from, far from guaranteed that he'd be mm. able to win the next election. Hey-ho. Well, that's a very unhappy note on which to end that particular discussion as we move to a deeply unhappy theme, and that's, the, that's this, this earthquake. And, um, I mean, I, I heard Erdogan talking about this is the worst catastrophe since an earthquake in the 30s, which killed more than 30,000 people. But when you look at the numbers from day one, we're already into the several thousands. Yeah. And I don't know if you saw some of the, the footage of the really large buildings that were literally coming down like matchboxes that were just, you know, matchsticks. They were just falling to the – so. and this is at four in the morning, local time. So one assumes that most people are in bed. Yeah, and it, it's horrifying here. I'm, I'm talking to you from Amman in Jordan, where it's where it's been snowing, and the snow is much worse through southern Turkey and and northern Syria at the moment. And last night I was with um, friends who've got family in Turkey. They're being advised by the Turkish government to to sleep in their cars, which have for mm. some reason believed to be the most most safe place to be. I think the difference from the 30s is a couple of fold. On the one hand, we've got a bit better at rescue, and we've got a bit more technology. On the other hand. In the 30s, most people would have been in earth buildings, mm. not in these multi-story, sometimes quite shoddily built concrete structures, which have just mm. come down. And as you said, when we began, it's almost certainly much worse in Syria, where it's ripped through both rebel-held and government-held areas mm. and comes on at the end of intolerable suffering that's been going on since 2011 in Syria, um, Just, just to remind listeners that the situation in Syria remains basically frozen over the last three years. Bashar al-Assad largely has won the majority of the country, but up in the northwest in Idlib, there's still a, a pocket of a very mixed group of resistance fighters ranging from Democrats through to al-Qaeda affiliates. And then right out on the northeast on the Iraqi border, Raqqa, Deir Azor, these cities that people might have heard of, essentially it's a Kurdish SDF controlled area, backed by a few American troops that are out on the Iraqi-Syrian border. Very unpopular with Turkey that sees these groups as backing the PKK mm. rebels in Turkey. And in the middle of this earthquake, there's also been a lot of political shenanigans with the Turks. Assad's diplomatic position's improving all the time. He's now opened diplomatic relations with UAE. Looks like he might be able to come to a deal with Turkey. So he, he's almost getting himself back to the status quo. I, I, I guess one question for you, sorry, very quick, quick, quick question for you. Erdogan's about to go into an election, and it's a, an election that it's very unclear if he was running a free and fair election, whether he'd be able to win in Turkey. Mm. Um, he's got an advantage, which is that he's locked up his major rival, who was the mayor of Istanbul. Mm. It's a man called Imam Oglu. But I wonder whether you think that the earthquake will strengthen or weaken Erdogan's position when he goes into an election. Do you think these sort of natural disasters can have impacts on the way that politicians perceived? Ooh, I mean, we're, talk we're talking about a pseudo-democracy, aren't we? Um, so, I, look, I think a disaster that allows a leader who is a pretty effective communicator and who then has his hands on the levers of power to, to, to make things happen, I guess politically 
could be seen as an advantage. Um, I mean, Erdogan is, is I think he's, he's going to win the election. I think we can be fairly confident <laughs> about that. But, you know, the other thing I think that's really interesting about in relation to what's happened with Syria, as you say, there are tensions within Syria, within this region that's been hit by the earthquake, and with neighbours such as Turkey. I think there are 1.7 million people, displaced people on that border. And as you say, we, I, I guess we, you know, even when you said there, I'm sitting in Jordan and it's snowing, I think a British mind thinks, well, you don't have the bad weather that we get here. They've got terrible weather in Syria and Turkey at the moment. Snow, rain, cold. So if you think of 1.7 million people, who are many of whom are refugees in their own country, and when you mention places like Idlib and Aleppo, we think of those in the context of the sort of destruction that Assad and Putin were doing on, particularly on, on Aleppo, much of which we're now seeing, the likes of which we're now seeing in parts of, of Ukraine. So these people whose lives have been so, so awful and have suddenly got even worse. And the thing is about if you don't have, in Turkey, they have that media infrastructure. They do have emergency service infrastructure and so forth. They do have the ability to call on countries around the world, say, bring us this, bring us that, bring us your search and rescue, make these donations here. And that is all happening. But they don't have the same in Syria. Yeah. And the humanitarian agencies are in a very difficult position and have been for more than 10 years now, which is how much do you work with the Bashar al-Assad regime when you're getting in the humanitarian supplies? And basically, yeah. they have to. But it's very, very uncomfortable because those regimes can put huge demands on. They can demand to actually distribute the stuff themselves. So you're stuck with this horrible choice. Do you get mm. life-saving supplies through and accept that you might be providing legitimacy to this regime or not? And And I guess... Now that it's 12 years on, a real question about how the West is going to deal with Syria and mm. the horrible suffering of Syrian people and mm. whether there's ever going to be a reconciliation with this regime and any money going into reconstruction because it's a, a shattered mess. I wonder if it's worth just staying sort of not far from that region as you're talking about the election in, in Turkey. There's an election going on right now in Cyprus. Um, and it's another one where the French style, uh, if you don't get 50%, it has to go to a runoff. And it's, it's really interesting what's happening there. And this ought to appeal to you, Rory, as you're constantly banging on about the need to get more independence into our elections. The two who have made it through are both running as, as independents, even though the, the, the guy who's in the lead is the ex-foreign ministry, actually was the ex-government spokesman. Uh, a guy called Nikos Christ, that I find Cypriot and Greek names very, very difficult. <laughs> Bear with me. Nikos Christodoulides, and he is on 32%. And he is going to be running up against uh, a guy called Andreas Mavroyanis, who's on 29.6. And the guy who was running as the ruling DC party, a guy called Neafitu, he is out on 26%. So you've now got this guy who was part of the government, who's now in the lead. He broke away, ran as an independent. He's up against a guy who's running as an independent, but he's backed by the leftist party. And, and worth thinking about for, for all of us, isn't it? Cyprus is the absolute crucible of the tension between Turkey yeah. and Greece. Cyprus is an EU member, which has had a very influential role and will have an influential role for Britain, for example, in decisions as to whether or not you allow Scotland into the European Union. Absolutely. And all this kind of stuff. 63 years since the Brits ran it. 
and still big British military bases there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you, Alice. I think that's the moment at which to take a break. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. This episode of The Rest is Politics is sponsored by The New European. The New European's independent journalism is world-class, and in terms of presenting a positive view of Britain's relationship with Europe, it is simply peerless. It's full of fascinating articles from across the continent and around the world, both political and cultural. And since Brexit, it's fair to say The New European has been a leading light in trying to balance out the corrosive nationalistic media in the UK that helped us get us into this mess in the first place. Besides my weekly diary, you'll find regular articles from writers as varied as Bonnie Greer, John T. Bloom, who is brilliant on the economy, Tanit Koch from Germany, Will Self, Jason Solomons, Mitch Benn, and James Ball. And here's some good news for you. They've done a special offer just for our listeners, and these are the best rates you'll get anywhere, guaranteed, and wait for it with a bonus. Sign up to the newspaper and website for just £2 a week or just the digital version for a pound a week. And they will also give you absolutely free a copy of the book they've done of their best front pages since that dreadful day, June the 23rd, 2016, Brexit. It's a real treat. And if you're buying it elsewhere, it costs you £15. You get it for nothing. So sign up now. You'll be supporting top class independent journalism and doing something positive to correct the right wing bias of most of the UK media today. Just go to www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash leading. That's theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash L-E-A-D-I-N-G. Thanks very much and all the best. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And with me, Alistair Campbell. I think Rory and I have both been surprised by how often we refer to books and articles and all that sort of stuff. Uh, in fact, Rory, I had a, a complaint last week from my friend Tommy Vita in America who said that he'd, he'd got the Norman Mailer novel on your recommendation and you hadn't worn it. It was 1,100 pages long. <laughs> uh, but so, and over the, over the last couple of weeks, we've been trading a newsletter for members of the Rest is Politics Plus that we send out around lunchtime every Friday. Now, Good news for those who are not members. We're going to make the newsletter available to everyone starting this Friday. So you don't need to sit there with pen and paper and scribble down anything that you want to refer back to that you may have heard about in the podcast. And to save us linking to the big multinational booksellers in this newsletter, we've decided to support an independent bookshop, Coles Books, who will give a 10% discount to Trip Plus members if they want to buy any of the books that we mention on the podcast. So to sign up for our, to our free mailing list and newsletter, click on the link in the episode description, have a look on our Twitter or Instagram or email restispolitics at gmail.com and we can sign you up from there. So if you want to save 10% on any books purchased, just sign up to Trip Plus at the restispolitics.com. I'm incredibly proud of this. I think it's wonderful that we're working with an independent bookseller. 
And I think it's it's great that we're managing to to encourage people to read books, not notwithstanding your complaint about that Norman Mailer book being a bit on the long side. I, I didn't complain. Tommy Vita complained. I, I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm fine with long books. I have written many of them. <laughs> Indeed, one 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 on its way, which we're which we're going to be discussing. Yeah. Uh, we're trying to get more young people and in fact more of everybody involved in politics as it goes from bad to worse which brings us to Liz Truss your friend William Hague had a very interesting column in the Times today essentially saying to both Truss and Johnson listen it's not difficult to work out who was at fault for you you two failing as Prime Ministers you were uh, <laughs> and this this incessant sort of I mean have you read Liz I've read Liz Truss's 4,000 words. I made all the three, yeah. So for listeners who, who can't really... Please summarise this one briefly, Rory. We don't yeah. need to have 4,000 yeah, so, words of list trust. Exactly. So essentially she says that she wasn't aware of how much debt the pension companies were in and the structure of their pension companies. So she didn't realise the risks that she was going to be taking. Secondly, she says that the entire economic establishment is against her, and she was sort of killed by Treasury orthodoxy. Mm, those communist bond markets. Those com- com- exactly. So that's a very good point, Alistair, was worth making, which some people also, including my ex-conservative colleagues, Gavin Barwell, David Gorks, pointed out that, that a lot of the damage was done by these kind of bond market traders who aren't exactly seen as great kind of lefty ideologues. There is a sort of very large intellectual inconsistency in everything that she's saying. Because as you say, she's basically saying, if only we could have sort of, you know, unleash the energies of the market, then my ideas would have worked. But it was the market, it was these <laughs> beloved markets that decided, I'm sorry, you cannot produce unfunded tax cuts. And this thing about these, the, the sort of the treasury orthodoxy, and she wasn't warned. One, there was a guy, I think he's called Charles Reed, who I saw on social media saying, uh, yes, she was because I warned her. Um, and but also perhaps if they she and Quateng had not gone in, and the literally the first thing they did was to say we're not going to bother with the office of budget responsibility and we're going to get rid of the guy at the top of the treasury because we don't think that they believe in what we're trying to do, then perhaps the preparation work preparatory work would have been better. And it's also bizarre because she was chief secretary to treasury, which means that for listeners, she was in the cabinet as the number two to the chancellor right in the heart of the treasury for a long time. So she ought to have known about these kinds of details, including the way that the pensions invested their money and the vulnerabilities of the financial markets. And she's not stupid. I mean, she's a you know bright, educated person, but she never somehow seems to have felt as chief secretary of treasury that her job was to get into the details of the department. And I think that's a big theme in modern politics that... Mm. Campaigning's all about these provocative, broad brush statements, you know, we're going to create growth, but not really about mastering the details. Mm. Um, I also, my, my, I have sources in the publishing industry, if I can put it like that, suggesting to me that perhaps the reason that she's done this 4,000 word article is that she had been putting her toe in the water to try to get a big book deal. And there was very little interest, shall we say. That would be amazing, would it? The sort of first prime minister not to be able to, to publish their book. I'm sure somebody would produce a book, but, 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 but she's not going to get the sort of the, the millions that Johnson's going to get. I do think, by the way, that Rishi Sunak is underestimating. I mean, as we're speaking, he's apparently doing a kind of limited reshuffle and he's, he's shaking up a few government departments. He's, he's moving, he's giving, he's creating a new department of culture, innovation and technology. I'll be very interested to see what happens to sport. I expect he'll just ignore it. But I think he underestimates how much power he's got at the moment. 
And I don't suppose for a second that he'll listen to me, but I honestly think if he were to put both Johnson and Truss in their place in a very significant way, and I've got an idea of how he can do that, it would give him strength both with his party and with his public. You now have a situation where there's Truss coming out and clearly saying, I'm going to carry on being a little bit like um, Ted Heath or Margaret Thatcher. I'm going to be like a sort of, you know, a noise in the background and I'm going to push this agenda that is against what Sunak is trying to do. You've then got Johnson, who is traveling the world, presenting himself with a sort of as a parallel prime minister, foreign secretary, particularly with regard to Ukraine. Nobody, by the way, ever asking him about his friendships with the oligarchs or his trip to the Lebedev parties and all the sort of terrible stuff he did with the Russians before the Ukraine war happened. And I honestly think Sunak has got to stop being polite to them. He's got to say, uh, a bit like William Hague has done, listen, Mr. Johnson, you lost power because you were incapable of telling the truth to anybody. Liz Truss, you lost power because you presided over a piece of catastrophic economic mismanagement. You had your chance, you blew it. Now go away and just rebuild your reputation in whichever way you want, but you're not doing it very well like this. There's a reason to do that because they are completely out of control. I mean, this is, I mean, I was, again, I'm in Jordan and it was striking yesterday, Jordanians saying to me, what on earth is going on? You know, how do you allow your ex-prime minister, Boris Johnson, to strut around the world making his own foreign policy, barely, you know, 150 days after he stepped down as prime minister. I mean, he's strutting off to Ukraine. He's sitting with the leading Republican voices in the States. US presidents are not able to do that. They're much, much more carefully controlled. You, I mean, Donald Trump is the most horrifying individual, but he's not actually to be found romping around the world 150 days after he left office holding big meetings with heads of states or trying to create his own American foreign policy in Ukraine. There's something very badly wrong with this. And the fact that Liz Truss thinks it's appropriate just 100 days after she stepped down from office to publish a full formal assault on Rishi Sunak, because that's really what that article is. Mm. Right? It's, it's under, you know, not very far under the surface. She's basically saying he's a wimp, he's given up into economical stuff. See, that's a party ripping itself to pieces. And the lesson of what happened over Brexit is that when David Cameron and Theresa May tried to respond with restraint when people like Boris Johnson were causing chaos and attacking them, it went very, very badly for them. You yeah, cannot absolutely. allow these rebels to do this. I think we talked, when Sunak took over, I think we agreed that it is impossible to imagine another change of prime minister before a general election. I think that would just be so ridiculous for the country. Uh, it's bad enough having had now five since Cameron, uh, you know, Cameron, May, Johnson, Trust, now Sunak, to have a sixth. It's just so absurd. So therefore, that makes Sunak stronger than maybe he feels. And I honestly think that if he were to stand up and say, you both were forced to resign, the idea of you having resignation honours, which further bring politics into disrepute, is absurd. They will not be happening. They have to be agreed by Downing Street. I will not be agreeing them. These are my priorities. I'm going to get on and try to try to deliver them. It will be much better done if I can have fewer noises off from people who got us into this mess in the first place. And I honestly think he would feel empowered if he did that. I mean, he, I think he could also, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not 
sure about your particular prescription, the House of Lords, but I think the general idea has got to be right. Well, is that because you're on one of the lists, Rory? Are you on one of the lists? Got a little backdoor peerage coming up? Some extraordinary reason neither <laughs> Boris Johnson nor Liz Trust wants to put me in the House I'm of Lords. Shocked. I, I'm shocked. I, I don't shocked. know. I blame you. Um, <laughs> listen, what would have happened if he'd come out publicly and when Boris Johnson first floated the idea of going to Ukraine and said, I think this is completely inappropriate for an ex-prime minister to do? And we are instructing him not to. Do you think Boris Johnson would have pushed through and done it anyway? Well, I'm imagining, I'm imagining that that trip could not have been done without the cooperation both of the MOD and of Ukrainian uh, defence forces. I don't see how you yeah. can do that. Yeah. Um, so I think he could have been in that position. Now, maybe their relationship has become so bad that they can't have a reasonable conversation. And Rishi Sunak had, didn't say to him, look, I don't think this is a good thing to do at this time. Um, but I think Johnson would have gone out and written an article in the Daily Telegraph saying this is what we should be doing. He'd have found a way around it, um, like, just as he, he'd have found a way around going to America. Because the one thing we know about Johnson is he doesn't obey the rules. Um, and that's why I think that has to be called out. I think when what, what Sunak has tried to do from day one is to differentiate himself from Johnson and Truss without saying that's what he's doing. So when he talked about professionalism, integrity, accountability, we know what he was trying to say, but I think he's far better to say it. We are in a mess because we had that guy as prime minister for three years and then we had this catastrophic economic mismanagement. I'm trying to repair the, repair the damage. I, it's a lot easier for me to do that if the Conservative Party is united. It's a lot easier for the Conservative Party to unite if we stop having these people going around pursuing their own agendas the whole time. And yeah. I think the public would understand that. They'd, they'd, they'd appreciate it. And I think his party might as well. Here's another example of interference then. So I was the member of parliament for Penrith and the Border, um, Cumbria, largest, most sparsely populated constituency in England. And the Boundary Commission's come along and redrawn the boundaries. And because it's redrawn the boundaries, there's been a standoff where the Conservatives have had to decide who the new candidate is going to be for this new seat called Penrith and the Solway. And what ended up happening is that the recently elected MP for Workington went against my successor, Dr. Neil Hudson, who, as you said in the earlier part of the show, like your father, is a Scottish vet, Scottish veterinarian. And Boris Johnson, mind-blowingly, astonishingly, decided to throw his weight in behind one of these MPs against the other. They're both MPs in his own party. The guy stepped yeah. down as prime minister barely four months ago, and he's out there interfering in a completely inappropriate way. What did he, what did he actually do? Did he say something publicly? He's issued a statement saying, Mark Jenkinson's a wonderful man, just the kind of person we want in parliament. Very, very proud of him. And Mark Jenkinson, and this is a sign of the direction in which Conservative Party is being taken by Boris Johnson. This is just like Trump interfering yeah. in elections in the United States. He's chosen somebody who was the UKIP candidate, yeah. ran against the Conservatives in 2015 yeah. as the UKIP candidate. And then, obviously, because of Brexit, came over to the right-hand side of the Conservative Party, became a Boris Johnson supporter, and has unfortunately succeeded. And so Neil Hudson, who's been working very hard as the MP for Penrith and the Border, my successor, and has been actually very independent-minded, stood out against Boris Johnson, voted against him on a number of issues, has ended up with all that hard work and all his effort being rewarded by him losing his 
losing his seat. He won't be able to continue mm. as an MP. I guess the difference with Trump as well, Johnson is very much a former leader of the Conservative Party. There is a leader of the Conservative Party, and that's Rishi Sunak, and he's also the Prime Minister because of that. Donald Trump is to all intents and purposes until they get a new candidate for the presidential elections, is essentially, if not the, certainly a leader in a yeah. way that, so, yeah. so, so he, he in a way is more entitled to get engaged in these selection processes yeah. than Johnson, who's just another MP, as it were. Now, I think the other thing about the, the, that I would recommend to Sunak, um, if you think about the ruthlessness and the brutality with, with which Johnson turned on people like you and Ken Clark and Nicholas Soames because you weren't 100% signed up to what it was that he wanted to do. Johnson is now not signed up to what Sunak is trying to do. Truss is not signed up to what, what Sunak is trying to do. What on earth do the people of Uxbridge think of the way that Johnson is conducting himself as an MP now? He's a backbench MP. Okay, he's, he's a former prime minister and that gives you a special status maybe, but he's a backbench MP. I think there is seriously there is a case for getting a deselection process going, withdrawing the whip like he did with you guys. With Boris Johnson, it's sort of challenging a lot of my traditional assumptions. I was sort of slightly lamented the fact that since Tony Blair, it's become very normal for prime ministers to leave parliament and not hang around. And I sort of being romantic think, you know, it's rather wonderful in the 19th century when people like Gladstone mm. stayed in parliament all their lives and remained long after they've been prime minister. But in the case of Boris Johnson, you can very much see the other side of the argument, which is, my goodness, in some ways, it's better to get these people out of the way than have them hanging around. Because as mm. William Hague's pointed out when we interviewed him, none of these people are remotely nice about their successes. They always sit there grumbling from the back benches, thinking mm. I could have been doing a better job. And the age thing, because they're getting younger, I think that becomes a, a factor. But we've discussed this before, that they call each other honourable and right honourable. Johnson is a dishonourable human being who became prime minister. He's not going to become less honourable. Um, and interesting, that Norma Percy documentary that I mentioned, there's quite a lot of David Cameron in it. And, and, and a bit of Theresa May, particularly around the, the Salisbury poisonings. David Cameron, uh, I can criticize David Cameron about lots of things, but he comes over, talk, he was talking about the efforts that he was trying to make to support Obama on Syria and then to try to get Putin into a different place on Libya and Gaddafi. And he comes over as actually quite thoughtful, quite serious, quite self-reflective. Theresa May, you know, Michel Barnier described Theresa May in the interview we did with him on leading this week, where he talked about, you know, her sense of duty and her, her courage and her dignity when she's, when she's talking again with a little bit of self-reflection. And then, as I said earlier, Johnson comes on and it's basically, it's just relentlessly, look at me, look at me, look at me, and I'm going to make you laugh about my conversations with Vladimir Putin. It's horrific to think that guy was ever prime minister. One of the things that's most horrific about it is how successful it was yeah. and how many people still continue to be incredibly enthusiastic for him. Like the new candidate in, uh, in your old constituency. Yeah. The other big democratic question which you've been engaged in this week, you got into a, a bit of spat, I noticed, with Sandy Toxfig, who is frankly of the view that in the 21st century in the United Kingdom, it is a bit weird that there are only two parliaments in the world where you automatically have religious leaders from that country into the parliament, and that is Iran and the United Kingdom. But you seem to think this is a good thing. Well, so it's a couple of things. I mean, so she put out this tweet 
saying exactly what you've said. Only two countries where representatives of state and religion ultimately get seats in parliament. These are the UK and Iran. Hashtag bishops out. Um, and got 2.6 million views. So I tweeted back saying, this is a perfect example of a Twitter line. It's a, a comparison which is entrancing, irrelevant, and utterly misleading. Iranian theocracy is a powerful present horror for millions. Bishops in the House of Lords are not. So I started with that. And then actually, it's been a fascinating sort of um, reminder of how weird Twitter is. Somebody else then wrote back saying, Rory, you're being misogynistic which then got another kind of well over a thousand likes. So I thought it was quite interesting. So essentially her headline for this slightly niche issue, just to remind people, there are 21 bishops in the House of Lords out of 880 members of the House of Lords. So it's about 2%. There has not been a single issue on which the bishops have wielded a decisive vote. And the House of Lords has almost no power anyway. So we can come back to it. But the idea that it's got anything remotely to do with what's happening in Iran, where the supreme leader is engaged in a kind of almost genocidal attack on his own people, is just something that Twitter loves, but is completely barking. I mean, it's a sort of, it's, it, it's, and the idea that my saying, pointing this out, means that I'm misogynistic, again, was hugely popular on Twitter. It's these few moments where I suddenly remember what it feels like to be on the centre-right rather than on the left. I guess the issue then is, is there a place? I mean, when you when you talked about the House of Lords, though, it has next to no power. It has quite a lot of power in its own way. It is part of the legislative process. The bishops are given an automatic political platform. You could argue that they have that anyway by being appointed bishops, but I think it, the fact that they can stand up in the parliament and, and say the things that they say out with a religious... Uh, the, the context of the church, I think, gives them a, an, an added status. I can think of various points in recent political debate where the bishops have been really important voices. I happen, as you know, to be a – I like Justin Welby. I think he's a very good Archbishop of Canterbury. I think there are other bishops that are, you know, very progressive. There are other bishops that I, you know, I think are way, way far to the right of me, and I don't necessarily like some of the things they say, but I think they can be an important part of the political debate without necessarily having that place in in our parliament. Just to put it in context, obviously, we have a state religion in Britain, and it'd be interesting to know what people think about that. We're not very unusual. I mean, about 80 countries around the world have some kind of state religion or religious preference. So, I mean, Denmark, Iceland, Norway have got Lutheranism, Greece, Armenia have got Orthodox Christianity, and of course, many, many countries have got Islam as their state religion. Mm. I thought probably the proposal I like best came from Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi, mm. to say that he thinks it's very valuable that different religious traditions are represented, providing different respective insights into the public domain. That the real answer isn't to remove them, the answer is to broaden and have more voices from other strong religious traditions in Britain. And except that some of what they say will not be universally popular. I mean, they will tend to be more conservative on social issues than most people. But they can also be incredibly challenging and hopeful. You know, you, you will have been encouraged by Justin Welby's support for the trade union movement. You will have been encouraged by some of his statements about conduct in public life. Bishops have been strong voices for peace, whether you like it or not. Well, I, 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 I thought it was great that Justin Welby and the moderator of the Church of Scotland were on that trip with the Pope to South Sudan. They yeah. were 
I thought that was a pretty interesting and, and pretty remarkable moment. Yeah. And whether, you know, whether it has any effect on the leaders of South Sudan actually making progress in trying to sort out the, the peace process there, I don't know, but I, I thought it was interesting that they were there. So they have a, they're, they're the top guys in the, look, the Pope has a huge political profile, huge. Um, and he, I think, uses it pretty, pretty effectively. And that is the, the end of this week's Rest is Politics. Well, thank you very much, Alistair. See you soon. Bye-bye. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.